invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me once more to the sixth chapter of Ephesians, to a passage of Scripture that deals with this subject of spiritual warfare, as well as the provision of God's armor for those who are believers in Jesus. Now, you know that we're living in a culture that's become increasingly secular, and as such, it's bought into various ideologies and has come under really a broad array of addictions and bizarre behaviors which are characteristic of our times. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that when people cease to believe in God, that is when they reject his truth, when they cease to believe in God, they don't believe in nothing, but they start to believe in everything. And surely that's where we are as a society in 2023. As society's gone the way of Romans chapter 1, when you reject the truth, then there's nothing left to believe but the enemy's lies. And so satanic ideas and their resulting carnage have become commonplace, and discerning Christian men and women have this heightened sense of evil and evil influences in our own time. So that perhaps now more than ever before, we need to give careful attention to the words of the Apostle Paul uh, here in this sixth chapter of Ephesians as it deals with this issue of the source of our conflict and why as Christian men and women we encounter so much struggle and difficulty in the world. It's because there's an enemy who opposes us at every level. And Paul is clear that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but ultimately against spiritual evil in heavenly places. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this passage that really there's nothing more urgently needed than for those who claim the name of Jesus to grasp and understand the teaching of this particular passage of Scripture. Because here we find an explanation why life is often filled with conflict and difficulty. There's an enemy who opposes you as a Christian. And again, this enemy is not flesh and blood, but it involves spiritual categories of evil that Paul sort of outlines there in verse number 12. And it requires that we be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power or the strength of his might. That is, I cannot withstand this spiritual evil in my own strength because I am no match for the devil all by myself. No, I've got to stand in the strength of Christ. And so how is it that I do that? Well, in these verses that we're going to read here in just a moment, Paul says that it involves consciously putting on the armor which God has supplied as a token grace. It requires that by faith we look to Christ and we acknowledge that he is our victory. And so if you're there in verse 13, I want you to stand with me this morning as we read the scripture together. I want to read from verse 13 all the way through verse 20. And you'll notice that Paul mentions the armor of God in these verses piece by piece. He says in verse 13, therefore, in view of the fact that there's this conflict spiritually and that there's an evil day, Uh, And there are forces of evil which war against your soul. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So you'll notice there are at least six pieces of armor that Paul describes in these verses, seven if you include his emphasis on prayer. And though prayer isn't really associated with any particular piece of the soldier's armor, it may very well be that prayer is the way that we engage in this spiritual conflict to begin with. Prayer is the battlefield. Someone says, how is it that we fight our battles? Well, as believers, we do so on our knees. And so Paul is specifically asking for the church to pray for him to to adorn the armor of God, to enter the conflict, but to pray, and specifically to pray that God would open up doors of opportunity so that the gospel could be declared in power. And so that's how we advance as the people of God. We stand in the victory that Jesus has already fought and won for us at Calvary, and yet we pray And we push back those evil forces of darkness by just simply being committed to the truth of the gospel. And so this morning, I want to speak from this subject, the belt of truth. Over the coming weeks, I want to look at each individual piece of armor that's mentioned here, beginning with this belt of truth. And so, Lord, thank you for the armor that you've supplied as a gift of your grace. Lord, may you speak in a powerful way. Open up our minds and hearts to understand your word, to be obedient listeners to your word, For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated, and thank you for standing. The fact of the matter is that effective armor is a crucial element in any war, and this includes, most certainly, this issue of spiritual warfare. How is it that we're to be strong in the Lord as the Apostle Paul exhorts us to there in verse 10 where again the grammar of the text he's saying be continually being strengthened in God's own power how do we stand strong in the Lord as Paul says here well we do so only as we put on the whole armor of God and the idea is we can't leave any part of ourselves uncovered because to be exposed is to be vulnerable And the enemy will exploit to his advantage any opening that he may find. Hence Paul's emphasis here, put on the whole armor of God or the full armor of God. And so notice his language here where he says, put on the whole armor of God or take up the whole armor of God. Verse 13, verse 14, put on. Verse 15, put on. Verse 16, take up. And so he's using this language, and by the way, this is a language that we see used elsewhere in the New Testament for the believer's conscious responsibility. This is how we live in view of our new position in Jesus Christ. 
In fact, if you just flip to uh, Romans chapter 13 for just a moment, I want you to see what Paul says there, something very similar. Uh, In the 13th chapter of Romans, along about verse number 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. So he's sounding the alarm here. Why? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Now listen to this. And put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. uh, Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality or quarreling and jealousy. Now look at verse 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So he's saying that as a believer, you've been supplied with what he describes here as the armor of light. He says that we're to consciously put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, as a believer, as someone who's come to faith in Christ, here is your new position. You are now in Christ, and that's a secure and safe position. But here's how you're to intentionally live in light of your position. Every day of your life, you're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're to put off certain behaviors and you're to put on new behaviors that correspond with this new person that you've been declared to be by God himself. Paul says this same thing in Ephesians uh, chapter four. If you go back just a couple of chapters from chapter six, he says that these Ephesian believers are to put off the old self which belongs to their former manner of life, and they're to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So according to Paul, the Christian life involves putting off and putting on. And here he's saying it differently in chapter six. He's saying you need to put on the full armor of God, the whole armor of God. Don't wait until things get difficult in your life before you make this a priority. Realize that this is just your daily responsibility as a believer. You're not to be nonchalant about your life in this world, but you're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're to put on the whole armor of God. You're to put on the new self. It means you understand uh, the new man or woman that you've been made to be in Christ while recognizing that Christ himself is your life. Your position is in him. You've been brought into union with him through faith, and so now you live by faith in light of that position. And so that's what it's meant by this emphasis of putting your spiritual armor on as a Christian man or woman. Now, when you look at these individual pieces of armor, there's a couple of things worth mentioning here just by way of context. Uh, as far as the first three pieces of armor are concerned, notice the verb tenses that Paul uses. And you don't so much see this in the English grammar as you do in the the language of the original text. In Greek, uh, these verbs here are in the participle form. And so you see these participial phrases there where he says in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth or having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the verb tense here indicates that this is something that's been accomplished in the past. 
that has present importance and reality for how we live presently. Now think about this. This is what God has done for you as a gift of his grace. You're now standing in the truth as a Christian man or a woman. You don't have to fight for truth or try to work hard to find truth. Listen, you are in the truth if you are in Jesus because truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the truth. So we have truth. We have righteousness. All of the righteousness that you need to go to heaven, it's Savior righteousness that you receive by faith. It's given to you as a gift. The moment you came to faith in Jesus, you've been declared righteous. You've been given the full righteousness of Jesus. And you can't get any more righteous than that. That's your position. And then gospel peace. Well, peace is the result of having believed the gospel in your life. Before you knew Jesus, you were an enemy of God. Uh, You were alienated from God. Now you've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ, and you are now at peace with God and peace with fellow believers. The world around us is in a constant state of turmoil. You want to know why? Because it doesn't have peace. And there will be no peace until people know the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus himself. But you see, you know peace because you know Jesus. And you know righteousness because you know Jesus. And you know the truth because you know Jesus. And then you look at these other three pieces of armor, things that Paul says we need to take up. Why? We're in the heat of battle. There's an enemy who's waging war against your faith, your soul, who's wanting to trip you up. If you're a believer, he can't do anything about your salvation. That's secure. So you don't know what he wants to do now? He wants to hinder your fellowship with God. He wants to fill your mind and heart with spiritual depression and oppression. He wants to confuse you as to the nature of truth. He wants to confuse you as to your purpose and your place in the kingdom of God. And so that's why you've got to take up the shield of faith. You've got to put on the helmet of salvation. You've got to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we do this over and over again throughout our Christian experience in order to withstand the enemy's attack. Now, something else to mention here contextually The order of these pieces of armor is important. That is, it's not by coincidence that the Apostle Paul begins with this belt of truth. And so he's using this metaphor of the belt or a girdle. Older translations may say something to the effect of having girded up your waist with the truth. Or having your loins girt about with the truth. Now I suppose I could talk to you this morning about whether or not you put your girdle on this morning, that could have been the title of my sermon, but I realize most of us in the room would probably be appalled at that thought. I mean, really, we don't use this language in our modern vernacular anymore. I wonder what your teenager might think, you know, if you told them before they go out the door with their friends, be sure to gird up your loins. (laughs) And so I'm thankful for this modern translation of belt because that's something I can understand. That's something I can recognize here. All right, so be sh- remember that, that Paul, he's writing to the Ephesian church from a Roman prison. He's under house arrest. And so that means that he could have had the constant presence of a Roman guard. He may have even been chained to one who would no doubt have been decked out in all of the garb of a faithful Roman soldier. And so Paul can survey this scene before him. Perhaps he's looking uh, at this soldier from, from head to toe in all of the apparel of a Roman soldier. 
And one thing about the Apostle Paul, you read his letters in the New Testament, he's always, he's always uh, using uh, illustrations from the natural world and making comparison to reality in the spiritual world. Uh, for example, the metaphor of a race. He says that the Christian life, it's like a marathon. It's, it's not so much a sprint, but it's a race. That's something I can identify with. He also uses this metaphor of warfare and describes the Christian as being a soldier, which means that the church is more like a battleship than a cruise ship, and yet we want to approach the church like it's a cruise ship. No, it's a battleship. It's a troop transport ship because we've got a mission in the world. There are evil forces at work in the world that are trying to undermine us and keep us from going forth into the world with the message of the gospel. And so that's why Paul is saying you need to be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand. And an important part of a soldier being able to stand in combat, the very first thing that he would have to do, would, he'd have to have his belt fastened. And so when you think of this belt of truth, associate this with preparation, not so much decoration. This is not the WWE title belt. You know, it's not the heavyweight championship of the world belt that just you, you show off as a conversation piece. No, this is, this is something that's practical. This is something that's necessary. It's functional and foundational. Because the soldier would have been dressed in these long flowing garments and he would have had a tunic and, and, and much of that would have been over all of his armaments many times and so that meant that progress could be impeded and he could trip and so part of the function of his belt was to, was to secure all that might otherwise hinder his ability to move that would restrict his readiness you don't want to be caught in a situation where you've got to be on the move, but you're not prepared. And so that's the idea here. And the same theme runs all throughout the Bible. Reminds me of Exodus chapter 12 where the Passover lamb, God gave instructions to Israel on the night of the Passover. He even told them how they were to eat the Passover lamb. They weren't to just sort of be relaxed and nonchalant in their houses. He said, have your loins girt about you. Put your belt on. Make sure it's fastened. Be ready. Why? Because they were surrounded by an antagonistic enemy and they needed to be ready to be able to pursue God at a moment's notice to follow God wherever God might lead. And so that's the idea here in Ephesians 6. And so the belt was an important part of combat. Uh, this, was, this was how the soldier could keep his, his weapons secure and fastened to his belt. It's a part of his preparation. It's important for combat. Something else that I saw in my study this week was that the belt, in many, in many ways, it was important for the sake of identification. Medals, medallions would be pinned on soldiers and on their belt, much in the same way that, that you see a soldier being decorated today, you know, on his, on his coat, certain medals or pins to sort of set him apart as someone who has had experience on the battlefield. Well, in the, Rome sort of had a similar procedure, but medallions could be pinned to a soldier's belt to identify him as someone who has had combat experience. That's so all of that considered, you can see why this is such an appropriate metaphor of the truth. 
because it implies readiness, preparation. It serves as an identifying marker of the believer in Christ. Because those who are in Christ, they have an intimate relationship with the truth of God. We know the truth, we love the truth, we walk in the truth. In fact, we spent months in 2 John and 3 John earlier in the year. And John says that he has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in truth. And so that's, that's the believer. You're, you're someone who's come to know the truth. You now love the truth. And truth is characteristic of your life. And all of this is foundational to Christian experience. Now, all of that aside, there is one more thing that I do need to point out here. And I think that it's very important. Now, realize that the Apostle Paul, he's writing to those in Ephesus who are mainly Gentile believers who no doubt they would have understood the metaphor of, of a soldier. They, they saw Roman soldiers up close and personal all the time. But you see, Paul, he's a Jewish man who has a very solid understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And, and, and he knows that the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward to the Messiah who would be a, a mighty warrior. The Lord is a man of war. Someone who would take the enemy on and would soundly defeat the enemy in combat. And so this Messiah, he's predicted, he's anticipated all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And so you see all of these pictures in the Old Testament describing the Lord as a mighty warrior, a divine warrior. Psalm 24 being one of those passages where the psalmist says, open up the gates so that the king of glory may enter. Who is this king of glory? Here's the response. The Lord, strong and mighty in battle, he is the king of glory. You see this same emphasis in Old Testament prophecy. For example, Isaiah chapter 11, where you have this picture of the Messiah as a mighty warrior who's striking the earth with the rod of his mouth. And then long about verse 6, verse 7 of that passage, it says that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That word faithfulness, it's interesting. Um, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, that word righteousness, it, it, aletheia is the Greek word used in that translation. It's the same Greek word that Paul uses here in verse 14 when he's referring to the belt of truth. Aletheia, God's truth. So the idea is, Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be the very embodiment of God's truth. Isaiah 52, verse 7, describes the shoes worn by the Messiah, this mighty warrior pointing forward. Here's what it says. How lovely, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Isaiah 59, you have the same thing. Verse 17, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And so you read all of this and you wonder, who is it that the prophet is referring to here? Well, the Bible is pointing forward to fulfillment in Messiah, Jesus and so why is that important? Because I think that that's the emphasis of the Apostle Paul here. He's wanting these Ephesian Christians and, he, and, and us for that matter to know that our victory ultimately, it's not whether or not we simply put on individual pieces of armor and engage the enemy ourselves, but whether or not we understand that Jesus, 
once and for all has taken on the enemy of our souls and at Calvary he has soundly defeated the evil one. He has vanquished the foe. And so now as a Christian, I simply move forward in the victory that's already been won for me by Jesus. I don't have to live my life under this cloud wondering whether or not I'm ultimately going to be victorious over sin and the powers of evil which often harass me. No, I can live with the confidence that says, the Lord is a man of war. He's a mighty warrior. He's the king of glory who's went toe-to-toe with the evil one and he's defeated him soundly in every possible way. Wow. So don't read the armor of God and, and, and think, well, I've just got to try harder. And that's the secret to victory. Because if that's your takeaway, you've totally missed the point. Paul's emphasis all throughout Ephesians has been on the believer's position in Christ and the believer's union with Christ so that the very things that are now true of Christ are true of you as someone who is in Christ. And that's something that the evil one wants to get you to forget as a Christian. He wants to weigh you down with shame and depression so that you live your life just with this chronic sense of worry and anxiety and wonder, am I going to make it? I've got good news for you. God said you're going to make it. You want to know why? Because Jesus has secured victory for you. Now, Three points of application about this belt of truth. I want to give these to you pretty quick, so listen fast. Application number one, God has spoken, and what he has spoken is true. So it's not a minor detail for us to note that this belt of truth comes first in Paul's list of armor. You remember the question that Pilate asks Jesus long about John uh, chapter number 18? He asked him the question, what is truth? We're going to know what prompted that question. Jesus says, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so this was something that was very confusing to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate responds by asking that question, what is truth? totally unaware of the fact that truth was standing right there before him in the flesh. And Jesus said, that's why I've come, to bear witness to the truth. And so what is truth? Of all the questions that people may have, there is none more pressing, none more important than that question, what is truth? It's a question asked by every generation throughout human history. Generations have wrestled with this question involving our own time. And that's where the heat of battle is in our own time, isn't it? Around this question, who is truth? What is truth? Who gets to decide what true, what's true and what's not true? You see, truth gets at the issue of, of what's real, what's expected from us. It answers all of those basic questions that explain our existence in the world. And so is it any wonder why this first piece of armor is described as being the belt of truth. There's nothing that Satan hates any more than the truth of God. And there's nothing more that he wants than to keep people blind as to the nature of truth. He likes to muddy the water. He likes to sow deceptive ideas into the world of humanity to keep people in the dark as far as truth is concerned. Now, there's debate among those who are much smarter than I am about the nature of the truth 
as Paul refers to it here in verse 14. Is he referring to truth in the objective sense, as in the truth? Or is he referring to it in the subjective sense as it's reflected in a Christian's life? As in the truthfulness that ought to be true of a believer. Well, I tend to believe that the the emphasis here is, is that truth is objective, while at the same time, it's also fair to say that there is this subjective truthfulness that ought to be characteristic of every Christian who is in the truth. If you've truly come to believe the truth, then truthfulness will be characteristic of your life. Alistair Begg says it this way, if you're a truth truster, you will be a truth teller. So so my life ought to be characterized by honesty and integrity and truthfulness. That's a practical result of me being rooted and grounded in this objective truth of Almighty God. So as Christians, we stand upon objective truth. It's not a matter of our perspective. Truth is not an issue of our preferences. It's not about my own individual beliefs. It's always about reality as it's been determined and fixed and revealed by God himself. And so to help you understand this, think of that word true. Let me just give you a helpful acrostic to help you sort of wrap your mind around this question, what is truth? True. What's true? Well, first of all, truth is transcendent. That word transcendent means that it it comes from above. Truth comes from God. God's revealed it in creation. You think about certain fixed laws that are true of, of the observable universe. There's the law of gravity, for example. Uh, Newton didn't determine the law of gravity. He simply discovered the law of gravity. Something that God himself has fixed and ordered into the very fabric of the universe. So in the same way, we know truth because God has revealed truth both in terms of creation in a general sense as well as special revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. Because God is truth, Jesus, he's God in human flesh, that's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the very embodiment of truth was standing before Pilate as Pilate is asking that question, what is truth? So truth is transcendent. Now, are in that word true? It's the word real. Not only is truth transcendent, but truth is real or reality. That is, it corresponds to the facts in the real world. Two opposing things can't be true at the same time and in the same sense, which is why it is absolutely impossible that you be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. Because the truth is fixed. The truth is what's real. It's what corresponds with the facts. And see, as Christians, we understand that because we are people of the truth, rooted and grounded in the truth. But don't think that it's by coincidence that all of this stuff and all of this argumentation going back and forth in our culture, this is all part of the enemy's strategy to try to bring humanity down to hell. Because he wants to confuse you as to what's real and what's not real, what's true and what's false. Jesus said that he is a liar and yet he poses as your ally. That's how he deceives Eve in Genesis chapter three. 
The serpent poses as her friend and pretends to have her very best interest at heart. But he introduces skepticism and questions God's word and then slanders God's character. And then before you know it, the serpent has drugged down our first parents into sin and death. He'll do the same thing in your life. Every temptation that comes our way in life, it follows the same pathology of temptation that you see in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, if he can get you to question God's word, if he can get you to question the truth and what's real, what's solid, then he can lead you down a path that will ultimately result in death. So truth is transcendent, truth is what's real, and then truth is universal. That is, it applies to all people at all times and in all places. It doesn't matter where you go in the universe, one plus one equals two. Two plus two equals four. No matter where you travel on this planet, the law of gravity, it's universal. What goes up must come down. And then the letter E is the word exclusive. Truth is exclusive. That is, it's absolute. Opinions about truth may change. Beliefs about truth may change, but truth doesn't change. And so you better be careful not to buy into this self-defeating belief that truth is relative, and it's simply a matter of your opinion. Opinions change, but truth never changes. That's why the psalmist could say in Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And so the point is, truth finds its ultimate source in God, and listen, Christian, he supplied you with the belt of truth that you need to fasten up every day of your life as you navigate the waters of a world that does not know what's right from wrong and questions all things true, you need the belt of truth. May our lives be cinched up by truth. Number two, not only is God the source of truth, but number two, Satan hates the truth, and he'll do anything he can to keep you from it. Anything he can to try to keep you from the truth. That's why we're told to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. That word for schemes in verse 11, it's the word we get the word method from in English. Paul is saying we need to adorn the armor of God so that we can stand against these deceptive tactics and methods of Satan. Speaking of his cunning his crafty ways, his evil, deceptive strategies whereby he drags people down to hell, which means that he's got a method, a calculated plan of attack in your life. And you think about it, he's been perfecting this for a millennia. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. So he's not God. He's not equal as far as, you know, the sort of equal on par with God. He's a creature. But I will say this, he has been plying his trade for millennia, thousands and thousands of years of human history, and you can rest assured that every day of your life, he's observed you and knows what makes you tick. He knows your pressure points. Uh, He knows your weaknesses. He knows your personality quirks. He knows things about you just by simple observation. And so his plan of attack in your life is to try to use those weaknesses and exploit your weaknesses and use them against you. And the greatest tactic in his toolbox 
is the tactic of deception. The Bible says that he masquerades like an angel of light, which means he assumes the posture of your friend. He assumes the posture of an ally, encouraging you and tempting you with bait that appeals to you on the basis of your senses, on the basis of your flesh, on the basis of your emotions, on the basis of what you feel. Because in this way, he wants to work against you so as to separate your emotions from your intellect and what you know to be true. If he can get you to just make your decision-making on the basis of the emotional rather than the rational and your will, then you can be, you ride this roller coaster of life where you're just constantly like the ebb and flow of the ocean tide. So this is why Paul is saying you need to be cinched up with the belt of truth. Fasten on the belt of truth because there's an evil day coming. The enemy is looking for an opportunity to attack. And how can I withstand his attack when that evil day comes if I'm not cinched up by the belt of truth? So God is the source of truth. Satan, he hates the truth. He's a liar. He wants you to be deceived. But the third thing that I want you to see this morning is this. God's truth is the means by which we stand against the the devil's schemes. It's the very means by which we stand against his lies. So to be strong in the Lord, this is the equivalent of what it means to be strong in the truth. And the truth of Jesus is what sets us free from the prison of lies which Satan seeks to keep us enslaved by. I didn't mention this, but I'll mention it quickly. Three lies, if you're a Christian, that Satan tries to constantly trip you up by. He wants to deceive you about who you are in Christ first. And so he'll come at you as far as your person is concerned and he wants you to, 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 to be confused as to the nature of your person, try to get you to find your identity and everything else. By the way, he does this with all of humanity, really. God's created man in his image, which means man is a worshiper. That's non-negotiable. No matter where you go, if you walk down Broadway of some major city or you go to some backwoods country out of the way place and you engage with people, you'll find that people are worshipers. Man is a worshiper just by virtue of his creation. He's gonna worship something. But in his lostness, he seeks his identity through everything else rather than his creator. But see, Jesus comes along and Jesus sets the prisoner free. Jesus gives you your new identity. But even as a believer, Satan will come along and try to lie to you about your worth He'll lie to you about the truth of who you are in Christ, and then he'll lie to you about the truth of what you have in Christ. He wants to blind you to your spiritual resources and make you think that you don't have what it takes. Blind you to the things that you've been given in Jesus. What, it, what do you have by way of resources in Christ? Listen, the truth tells me that I have been forgiven in Christ. The truth tells me that I have been reconciled to God now and I'm a friend of God. This is through the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. The truth tells me that I have the Holy Spirit who's come to take up residence within my heart and life as a believer. I have a resident helper, which means that I will never find myself in a situation where God's abandoned me. 
That's the truth. But the enemy wants to blind you as to these resources. So he wants to trip you up with reference to who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, and then third, where you belong in Christ. Here he attacks you on the level of your work. And he'll say something along these lines, well, you're not really fruitful in this area. If you were more faithful and fruitful in this particular area, but you're not. And so he'll fill you with feelings of worthlessness that will lead to spiritual depression in your life as a believer. And all of that's part of his methods against you. But you see, the very, the very means by which of standing against these lies from the enemy, it's this belt of truth that the Apostle Paul is describing for us in verse 14. Jesus said to his disciples in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we often quote that verse, and we say, well, the Bible says the truth will set us free. And that's true. There is power in the truth to set men and women free. But listen to what Jesus says there. He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That is, it's the truth that you personally know. It's the truth that you've come to personally believe. There's an intimate association with this truth. And the result of that, the truth that you know, then sets you free. And you say, okay, well, free from what? Well, free from the prison of sin and the grip of the devil. Because the Bible says the whole world in its fallen state is under the power of the evil one. The very people that we're called to minister to and to reach out to in the name of Jesus, men and women and children in this world, people of every nation, tribe, and tongue who are in the darkness, they're in the grip of sin and in the domain of the evil one, and yet we've been given this word of truth, the gospel, Jesus sets the prisoner free. And so the devil's cover is blown, folks. And when you think that Satan is a liar... He was a liar in the beginning. He's been a liar every day of man's history. He's been a liar every day of your own life and your Christian experience. You can see why you need this belt of truth. Because God's truth overcomes Satan's lies. My marriage needs to be wrapped up with this belt of truth. My family needs to be wrapped up with this belt of truth. Every day as I live my life in this world, I need to go forth prepared and ready, having put on this belt of truth because this is the believer's birthright. It's interesting to me. You say, well, what's the difference between the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Well, think about this. The sword, as far as Romans, panoply, that's the word for his total uniform, his complete suit of armor, the soldier's belt would hang, his, his sword would hang from his belt. So it's not by coincidence that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, hangs from the belt of truth, the objective truth of God. There are a lot of people who want to wield the sword, but they don't want to wear the belt of truth. You ever met people who could quote verses of Scripture, but their life was not in line with the very Scripture that they like to quote? Hypocrites. Hypocrites want to try to take up the belt or take up the sword, but they don't want to wear the belt. 
No, listen, we need to put on the belt of truth. If we're going to make it, and not just make it, but I'm talking about thrive spiritually in a world that's filled with deception, we need lives that are cinched up by the truth. So would you stand with me for prayer this morning? The Bible says, take up the whole armor of God. And notice that it says take it. It doesn't say make it. This is not about you simply striving in your own effort and strength. No, the armor that you need, it's already there for you. This is God's armor given to you to wear. And don't think that it's nice, neat, clean little armor that's never seen combat. No, this armor is blood-stained. Stained with the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God himself who dealt the enemy a death blow through his own death on the cross and resurrection. And so now, my friend, we get to stand in his victory. We stand consciously aware of the fact that the victory, it belongs to us because it belongs to our Lord. Is your life cinched up by the truth? Maybe you found yourself lately being tempted by the enemy to doubt the word of God to doubt the goodness of God in your own life that's what he did with Eve if he could just get her to question the the will of God and the word of God he could slander the character of God and, and cast doubt upon the goodness of God in her life. You know, God's really holding out on you, Eve. That's why he's told you you can't eat from this particular tree. But it was all a lie. It wasn't the truth. Every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. If you've never come to Jesus, Maybe you've been asking questions. Maybe you've been visiting for some time. Maybe you're here for the very first time today. You'd say, Pastor, I'm just not sure that I am saved. But I want to be saved. I believe this gospel truth that Jesus died for my sins upon the cross. That he fought the enemy and won. And that he rose again from the dead. And I believe that he is Lord, and I confess him as my Lord. You know, the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If that's you this morning, we want to celebrate with you. Would you come and let one of our pastors know so we can pray for you and talk to you about baptism? We'll have some right here at the front in just a moment on both sides of the worship center. I'll be available even out in the lower lobby as the service is over. I'd invite you to come by and say, Pastor, today I became a Christian. God saved me by the truth. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for this armor that you have so graciously supplied. And Lord, we live in a world where the enemy has sown an abundance of lies. And the world is in darkness, but Lord, we can be of good cheer because you've overcome the world. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And as your people, we're people of light and people of truth. And may the objective truth of your word make us truthful and honest people. 
and change our relationships, change the dynamic of our homes. Cinch us up, oh God, by this belt of truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.